0: This is an ABC podcast. This is the WA Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Radio WA.
1: Hello, how's your Friday going? Great to catch up with you this Friday afternoon. And I'm wondering if you are getting out and about as a result of some of these coronavirus restrictions starting to lift. There's a bit of a vibe in the capital city in the lead up to the weekend with some of those restrictions being eased and the pubs and clubs and cafes and restaurants. I think it's going to be busy in the city. Further afield though around the state, some of those events that you really look forward to are also coming back on the agenda like camp drafting for example, popping over the border to the Northern Territory shortly after half past 12 today, just to see uh, the first camp draft for the Territory underway today. And some of the participants who signed up just reflecting back on their very first camp draft, which is still very fresh in their minds. And I wonder if you have a story to tell, too, about your first camp draft. Do you remember it? Let me know this afternoon, where were you? What happened? zero, double four, eight, nine double two, six, zero four to text through, and also that uh, virtual wine tasting is really starting to take off. You heard a few weeks back about, about a uh, a wine maker that is really kind of grabbed hold of this idea during the coronavirus shutdowns because you can 't travel and Spruke and talk about the wine, so you do it virtually. And Deeperd likes the idea and has launched a pilot program for this. You'll hear more about it shortly. And it is Friday, so just before the news at one o'clock, you'll get the results of this week's wool sales across the country. And if you were selling wool this week, it wasn't a great week. Values dropped right across Australia. This was also the final wool sale for the financial year so today really a chance for you to get a quick comparison of wool prices compared to the previous year. Chris Wilcox is the head of wool selling brokers of Australia and he says right across the country wool values plummeted by more than 35%. Well over the year in
2: the western market indicator we saw a drop of 36%, 36%, 656 cents over the year, a huge drop. The eastern market indicator dropped by 605 cents, so that was down 35 percent. So it's a very similar percentage change and uh, cents per kilogram change. Yeah.
1: I mean, we were coming off record prices. Is that really the reason, or is there any other reason that you can see in, the, in those figures?
2: Uh, look, there's, there's two reasons, and you're, you're dead right. At the start of this season, Prices that uh, were at pretty high levels, and they'd uh, come off the the peaks that we saw. But even so, they were still sitting at around about the uh, seventeen dollar a kilogram mark. So we're on our way down a bit anyway from that that uh, enormous peak in that super cycle. But we've had a couple of things that contributed. First of all, was the U.S.-China trade war. Which by now, everybody would have forgotten about, but. Uh, US imposing additional import duties on wool clothing imports from China. And most of that uh, what goes to those wool clothing products from China actually comes from Australia. So we, that was a direct hit for us. And then prices stabilised for a bit and seemed to be actually on the improve in January. And then, of course, COVID hit and, and that's really um, put the skids under the prices, unfortunately. Uh,
3: has
1: there been any other impact uh, from covid That you can see in your analysis?
2: Oh look absolutely I mean we've seen it in prices we've seen it in the uh, volume of wool that um, is being offered at auction where we're we're down to pretty low levels each week at the moment and that's because growers just aren't if they they can't don't need to sell they they aren't and they're holding on to their wool but we're also seeing a very weak demand situation we saw Australian wood exports, and the latest data for for Australian wood exports, unfortunately, is only April. But in April, we saw a, a massive drop of um, 16% in April in volume terms, but it was down by 37% in value terms. And that was largely because uh, Italy was closed, Czech Republic was closed, India was closed. Now they're three of the four biggest export destinations and there was just no demand to those uh, and exports to those those countries and they haven't been over the last month or two since. And as a result, China dominated. They, they took 93% of Australia's world exports in, in the month of April.
1: That's an incredible figure, really. Um, in terms of volumes, um, what did we see over the financial year um, in terms of number of bales sold?
2: Well, look, uh, across Australia, we saw a a, um, a 19% drop in the number of bales sold. There was something like a 13% drop in the amount of bales offered, but there was a bigger drop in the the number of bales sold. And in the West, we saw a 16% drop in the number of bales sold.
1: Chris Wilcox, he's the Executive Director of Wool Selling Brokers of Australia and just going through those end of financial year figures with Emma Field. So for the year up until April, China, as you'd imagine, a big market for Australian wool, China taking 75% of Australia's wool exports, then India... Took 6%, Italy 5%, and the Czech Republic coming in at 4%. They were the main buyers of Australian wool. This is The Country Hour on ABCWA. It is 11 past 12. Well, what do you think wool is worth to Western Australia's economy? Last year, it was valued at just under $1 billion. Deep Kate Pritchett has pulled together some data on the whole WA sheep industry and she says it doesn't matter which livestock industry you look at, when it comes to value, wool is king. Out of all the livestock sectors, wool is
3: the strongest economic contributor. In 2018-19, 32% of the total value of livestock came from the wool sector, so it's really quite an important area. We keep hearing this um,
4: narrative about how the wool clip is shrinking and that sort of thing, but I suppose its value would have been propped up by the increase in pricing that we've seen over the past few years?
3: Largely, yes. The, um, there has been a reduction in in wool production over the last however many years, mainly off the back of a much reduced sheep flock if you're comparing it back to, say, the early 90s, mm. um, but... Um, Last year, we saw some fantastic prices, which have come off a lot now. Um, but, yeah, that generally, the value of wool production has been quite significant compared to other livestock sectors.
1: This is The Country Hour, 12 past 12. And Kate Pritchard has also been crunching the numbers on sheep meat. Last year, a record $596 million worth of sheep meat was exported, from Western Australia. The biggest jump was in mutton exports. That was up 52% on the previous year and that was driven by increased demand for protein in China.
3: Of our total 84 million kilograms of sheep meat exported, mutton made up 44.2 million kilograms, whereas lamb made up 39.9 million kilograms. And then in a value perspective, uh, it was worth, as you said, just under $600 million um, and mutton constituted $259 million um, compared to lamb, which was worth three hundred and seven. Who were the major buyers for our sheep meat exports, Kate? Our largest market um, is China and they've been our largest market for quite a few years now Um, and they took in value terms, they took 40% of our total sheep meat markets. They were followed by Qatar, um, which has also grown quite rapidly in the last couple of years, who took about 13% of the value of our sheep meat exports. The US, as well, which was our third largest market, has also grown quite rapidly over the last, say, three to four years.
4: Do you think that we saw any impact from African swine fever and the resulting culling of millions of pigs and that protein shortage? Did you think that had any impact
3: on these figures here, on, on any of the values or the kilos? Um, I think so. I believe that that would have been one of the big drivers in the growth in the Chinese market. I mean, they grew from $111 million worth in 2018 to $237.8 million in 2019. So, that's quite a significant jump. So, I do believe that that was to try and uh, make up for some of the shortfall in protein that was caused by their reduction in their pig herd. In comparison,
4: what did the quantity and the value of live sheep
3: exports do during that 2019 period, Kate? The live sheep exports, um, well, they reached about 1 million head in 2019, which is up 6% compared to the year before. And they were worth about $136.2 million, so also up slightly on 2018. Um, It has been a bit of a decline compared to previous years, however, um, but that's largely been driven by the the pause in trade that we see over the summer months over the last couple of years.
4: Yeah. Do you have any longer term data there in terms of, say, comparing 2019 to
3: 2009, the, the value of that live trade sector? In 2019, as we said, it was worth $136.2 million. Back in 2009, it was worth $239.3 million. So there has been quite a significant decline um, over that time period.
4: And if we move all of those um, different sectors that we've been looking at together, what was WA's total combined sheep turnoff last year?
3: Um, our total sheep turnoff, um, which would include our interstate transfers as well as our slaughter figures, um, it reached 5.1 million head in 2018 um, 19. I haven't calculated a calendar year total for that. So, and that was made up of 2.7 million lambs slaughtered, 1.4 million sheep, and yeah, just under 1 million exported live, as well as the 146,000
1: interstate transfers. Deep Research Officer Kate Pritchett speaking to Joe Prendergast about the total value of sheep to the WA economy. So just to wrap it up, last year overall, sheep were worth $1.5 billion to the WA economy and breaking that down further, wool was worth two-thirds and meat a third. And I know you love your figures. So between July last year and April this year, 1,050,000 1,050,000 sheep and lambs were trucked east and that compares to just 146,000 for the previous year. Quite an incredible difference. 17 past 12. Well, some farmers in Western Australia's Great Southern region are involved in a fodder trial that's being done just in case the live sheep trade collapses Now, the aim of all this is to find alternative fodder types that can quickly fatten sheep that would normally end up on the livestock export ships. The trials are being run by the Southern Dirt Group in the Wage and Darken area, and the project officer is Mel Jardine.
5: The sheep industry is a hugely valuable industry to our Wage and Darken farmers, and we are looking at alternative fodder crops to increase weight gain in hoggets and weaner lambs. And with this in place, we can look at reducing reliance on live export.
6: And Peter, you're a local wage and farmer and you've volunteered your land
7: for the project, why is this study important to you? Well, it's not just a financial or a um, logistical benefit that I'm looking for, but an ecological one as well. Managing my stocking rate to fit carrying capacity, um, fostering a, a more resilient farm ecosystem and ultimately to have a system which not only benefits me but in the long term for my children and their children to produce a a farm which is better than what I found it. So what sort of alternate crop varieties are you trialling Peter? This year for our control we have oats and in the alternate part we've got lupins, oats, vetch, canola and a bit of clover basically a really low-cost mix that most farmers can put together from what they might have in their silos. We've seen a few shocks within the live-export sheep
6: trade, you know, this past couple of weeks, with the ourquaint finally uh, leaving our shores. Is that exactly the type of situation that this research is aimed to combat?
5: This research gives farmers another tool. It may help the live-export industry. I mean, if the live-export industry does disappear... It gives farmers the tools to fatten lambs for local markets.
6: If you're able to identify some really standout performing varieties, surely that'll mean you know more certainty and potentially more money in the pocket for growers.
5: That certainly will. We can actually predict gross margins to be as profitable as cropping. with The value of sheep at the moment, it's looking promising.
7: Yeah, well, I think it allows producers to turn off their sheep reasonably early into the prime lamb market without investing in a feedlot but getting more production out of that paddock.
5: Currently sheep prices are pretty good. There are markets in Australia for sheep but we never know if we've got a greater supply around and we don't have that live export market. If we're producing a consistent quality product we have the opportunity to send chilled meats.
7: If it's successful I'll be really happy if it is. Not just for the uh, the economic benefits, but also from a practical point of view and ecological point of view.
6: And so, Mel, the industry currently contributes 136 million dollars to the overall Australian economy. Long term, can you speculate whether or not this Plan B will be able to, you know, fill that gap if live export was to collapse? And if so, you know, how long do you reckon that might take?
5: It's a part of the equation. And- Part of creating an alternative is we need to create the feed, but it's only a small part of the equation, but it's a step in the right direction. There's so much uncertainty with live export. We see so much in the media. Let's just give our farmers another tool in their belt so they can help farm for our future generations. That
1: is Southern Dirt Project Officer Mel Jardine and also Wage and Farmer Peter Cummings catching up with Hugo Ricard bell and talking about some of those alternative fodder crops that they're trialling, having a look at things like vetch, lupins, clover and oats just to see how they fatten lambs in this three-year trial. This is The Country Hour, 21 past 12. A little later in the hour, you are off to the very small town of Adelaide River, which is in the Northern Territory. And the crowd gathered there pretty excited because it is the very first camp draft for this year. After all the coronavirus restrictions, um, obviously a few delays there, but the first one kicking off today in uh, Adelaide River. And I was asking for your memories of your very first camp draft And Eric in 2J says, uh, the West Australian Team Penning Association ran a ranch sort of an event last Sunday. And it's a picture there of a photo of Eric who's discussing tactics with his partner prior to the final. Thank you for that, Eric. And this from Dale at Yelbini. My first camp draft was the Nullarbor Muster. First time competing in the open bull ride and managed to hold on for the eight seconds And then Dale goes on to tell you way too much information about what happened a little later in that evening. Uh, Dale, thank you for sharing that. If you do have a story to tell, let me know. 0448 922 604 to text through this afternoon.
0: The WA Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Radio WA.
1: Well, it is Friday. It is almost Friday drinks. I don't know about you. certainly is for me. Uh, And the state government has plans to double Western Australia's wine exports to Japan. But in the midst of this uh, global health pandemic, the traditional ways of building trade relationships are pretty much on hold for the foreseeable future. So this week, Deep Earth has launched a pilot program to encourage virtual wine tastings, just to overcome those challenges posed by international travel bans. And Agriculture Minister Alana McTiernan thinks remote tastings will boost trade with Japan, which could become a prominent market particularly for mid-quality to premium Western Australian white wines.
8: Well, Japan is a good market for Australian wine, and certainly from our feedback is that we could do better than we are currently doing, that a lot of Eastern States wines are focused, being focused over there, and yet our premium quality wine is not having the same penetration. So we're very keen to make sure that these, you know, the Japanese sommeliers and wine merchants have the opportunity not just to taste that eastern state stuff, but to see the WA product, and uh, mm. that's the reason why we we focused on Japan. So we're we're currently selling uh, about eight hundred thousand dollars a year of wine to Japan. We you know we aim to really see if we can uh, double that, get that up around the at least around the two million dollar mark, and create you know, a good market for our medium to premium uh, wines.
0: Can you sort of talk me
9: through what the department is, its involvement in this new scheme and what the actual, the project is?
8: Look, we've we've got a very full marketing program that we've had creating new markets for our food and wine. But of course, the traditional things that we've been doing, which is bringing in delegations from overseas, just, can't happen now with covid so we've been exploring new ways and one of these new ways has been to offer these uh, online virtual winemaker masterclasses to a group of 20 wine industry professionals in tokyo so we got to wa winemakers we delivered their chardonnays to these various sommeliers and uh, wine merchants And then they all sat down with their lovely bottles of woodlands and McHenry um, Honan wines and went through the masterclass, uh, really switched on, really asking the, the technical questions and were certainly most interested in participating. So the feedback's been really positive and we're looking at using this approach not only in Japan but now in other markets.
1: Agriculture Minister Alana McTiernan with Jess Hayes on the Country Hour 25 past 12. Off to the newsroom shortly for an update on the headlines. Then it's off to the Bureau of Meteorology. And this text just through. can you ask the bomb, is the south coast east of Albany going to get any decent rain soon? Well, I'll ask the question. We'll see what the answer is after half past 12. First, though, have you changed your... Food shopping habits since the coronavirus pandemic really kicked in. Well, Darren Keating from the Produce Marketing Association says shoppers, you, are now focusing on food safety more than ever before.
10: It's been really interesting. I think, look, everything in, the, everything in this industry is driven by the consumer. The person, you know, the buying habits, the behaviours, the way they think really, you know, pushes the whole chain around the changes have been really interesting because we saw the immediate spikes and so we saw you know runs on different trends um, about different products like toilet paper and things like that which which were in short supply there for a while but then we saw the bigger trends that came with more home cooking more home delivery and um you know of, of food and fruit and vegetables and things. But then even people started thinking about health a bit differently. And we saw the way people were buying and choosing their food, the avid lens of health was coming over it. And it wasn't all just about, you know, how are we going to roll out of, roll off the couch now, tracky-dacks once this uh, lockdown ends. It was part thinking about how do you eat for health and wellness. So there were some trends that came through there. These are probably all trends that have been happening over the past 10 or 15 years. But what we've seen is a real acceleration. So COVID's picked a number of them and pushed them forward. So we knew we were going to have more online shopping happening, things like that, but they've really accelerated in the way the consumers have taken them up.
6: A big one that stood out for me from reading the report is food safety. How important is that going to be for consumers going forward?
10: It's always been important. I think food safety is one of those things that we often take for granted from a consumer perspective. The point of difference this time was that it became, it went from being kind of a back-of-house thing, something that the supply chain invests a lot of time and effort in in making sure it's right, to something that consumers were conscious of. Um, Now, a lot of that came to light in a a negative way. We had a lot of misinformation being spread about how to wash fruits and vegetables, some ridiculous advice being offered and look well-meaning, but, you know, suggesting to use disinfectants and bleach towards vegetables was clearly not, you know, not the right um, right tactic there. But it really brought to the forefront the idea of, of food safety for different reasons than we typically have, but it's brought it into the space where consumers are thinking about it now and it's something they're going to be conscious of really moving forward.
6: What does that mean for things like plastic packaging? Because before coronavirus, there's a big push away from that. But now that people want to make sure their food hasn't been touched or is clean, are single-use plastics back?
10: Good question, and I don't think there's a simple answer on it. Sustainability's been a large focus for consumers. Um, and look, from what we've seen in the media here in Australia and globally, the challenge around um, packaging, whether it be single-use or, or other types, has been an ongoing discussion um, for some really good reasons. Um, and that's been a discussion that both the consumers and the whole supply chain have been involved in. What we've seen was that that was really a, a strong push and a growing trend Covid came along, and there was a period there of kind of that panic buying, as I mentioned before. You know, there were shortages of products on the retail shelves, and so we saw some push there to basically take whatever we could. We've also seen a lot more online buying, and look, that can result in some a lot more prepack being part of it. So when I say prepack, it's like you know your kilo packet of apples and things like that, which comes with some packaging. Those things came by default the notion of whether australian consumers are focusing on that packaging as being a food safety benefit is one we're probably not really clear on but we have ended up with more packaging you know in there and food safety is one of the things that it can deliver some benefits on but looking more broadly i don 't think the consumers have dropped that driver to have good sustainable practices in the companies that they purchase their goods and services off so in a really interesting spot there where we 're seeing you know I suppose a bit of a, a bit of a convergence of the the trends of you know food safety and uh, and higher sustainability coming together there it 's going to be one to watch in the future and I think anyone who's working in the fresh produce industry should, um, should be having a think about how they can you know manage those two those two needs not always competing, but there'll be some spots in there where you know I think there'll need to be some changes and investing in things like sustainable packaging um, was something that was always there. So it's going to be something I think is part of our future even more so.
6: And that lends into technological development. Where do you think that'll go in the future now with these different consumer trends and coronavirus in terms of the fresh food supply chain?
10: A lot of opportunities in data sharing are coming along, but even the way we communicate um, is going on. Look, I mean, you know, we're having a phone conversation right now, but you just think about how many of us split over so seamlessly to working from home with, you know, the video conferencing technology, and that was everything from from our work life to our social life to our you know, kids going to school. That upgrade of technology, Nick, the take-up, has shown us that we can do it. I think when it comes to, to looking at the supply chain, about sharing information and trust and transparency are two themes that came out of the report as being an opportunity for the industry. We're definitely going to see consumers wanting to know more about the food that they're eating and then other products they're buying. And so sharing information is going to be a stronger theme. We had the the run of everything being about blockchain. I don't know that it'll be under the guise of blockchain, but a lot of the themes that came in there about you know being able to share information both ways along the supply chain, to ensure that everyone benefits from it, is going to be a strong theme moving forward.
1: Darren Keating, he's the CEO of the Produce Marketing Association Australia-New Zealand and talking to Hugh Hogan. On the country, our 29 to 1 to the newsroom and with an update, here's Jonathan Beale.
0: Thanks, Belinda. The Health Minister says COVID-19 can't be eliminated in WA but it can be controlled. The state recorded no new cases of the virus overnight but Roger Cook says new outbreaks are possible and potentially inevitable. Western Australia's minimum wage will rise by $13 to $760 a week from the 1st of January. The decision was due to take effect in July but has been delayed because of the coronavirus pandemic. The increase applies to workers under the state wage system, which is generally those in the small business sector. And the New South Wales Labor leader, Jodie McKay, says MP Sheket Moselmain's party membership has been suspended amid allegations Chinese government agents have infiltrated his office. AFP and ASIO officers have raided the home and office of Mr Mosulmin today. Authorities say despite the raids, there is no current or impending threat to community safety. More news at one o'clock.
1: Jonathan, thank you for that. Twenty eight to one. And have you changed your grocery habits? Have you had your lunch yet? Well, I wonder, if you haven't quite stuck in, got stuck into it yet, I wonder how this sounds to you.
11: The best way to describe it is um, if you think of a lamb roast and the crunchy fat bits on the side of the, or um, well, the caramelised fat on the side of the roast, um, it has a similar component to that. You could almost say it's a bit like roast lamb.
1: So has that got your taste buds cranking? Do you know what it is? Can you guess what it is? It is lamb bacon. Did you know bacon can be made from any meat? Well, if you didn't, you are not alone because the people behind this lamb bacon product got told they couldn't market it, their product, as bacon. Now, it sounds like they had an interesting tussle just to get it on the market, and you will hear more about that shortly here on the Country Hour. 27 to 1, this text just through. Please, Ms. Country Hour presenter, it is Albany with an A, not elbow knee. Just when I thought I had that one under my belt, seems I can't even get old Albany right. Thank you for that. Zero double four eight nine double two six zero four. Off to the Bureau of Meteorology and Steph Bond is on deck this afternoon. And Steph, the Southwest Land Division, what can you see this afternoon and for the weekend and into the new week?
9: Afternoon, Belinda. Yes, it's going to be a series of cold fronts that affects most of the South Land division over the next three to four days. Uh, we have seen some showers and storms for uh, just across the southwest parts these, this morning. And we may still see a shower or storm this afternoon and evening southwest of a line from Shark Bay to Hopeton. Um, but uh, rainfall wise, we're just gonna probably get a couple of mil uh, from those showers and storms. Uh, as we move into Saturday uh, across the southwest land division, we'll see showers persist along the west coast from around Geraldton down to the Busselton area and uh, adjacent. adjacent inland parts Um, and then we'll see uh, figures uh, increase during the evening around that area Um, and that is as a cold front starts to approach uh, which will move through Saturday night. Uh, So overall we'll see showers uh, develop southwest of a line from around uh, Cape Cuvier down to Esperance uh, with some thunderstorms southwest of a line from around Geraldton inland to Southern Cross and down to uh, Bremer Bay as well. Uh, Rainfall figures for the Saturday midnight to midnight. We are looking at uh, figures around the west coast, uh, possibly around 5 to 10 millimetres, all the way from Dedham down to Bunbury. But if you're between Durian Bay and Bunbury, you're probably looking at more 10 to 15 millimetres. And even as you go inland through uh, probably around 100 to 200 kilometres, we're probably even looking at um, up to 15 millimetres metres so as we get into Sunday uh, as that front moves through early Sunday morning um, that's when most of the rainfall is actually going to occur from that uh, first front moving through Um, but then we do get uh, it stalling that first front kind of stalls a little bit over central parts of the southwest land division and we have a second front uh, coming up later Sunday into Monday uh, now, this is probably where we're going to see most of the rainfall fall uh, overnight Sunday into Monday as well, where we will see showers and storms extend through all of the southwest land division, and we could even see some gusty winds, uh, particularly across the southwest uh, uh southwest of durian bay down to esperance probably uh rainfall figures from midnights like the kind of midnight saturday to midnight sunday uh it can be quite variable still in the model guidance particularly for the heavier figures uh but we could see southwest of a line from around geraldton down to uh bremer bay Uh, but excluding the albany area i'm afraid uh we could see around 10 to 15 millimeters and if you're along the west coast around that durian bay down to the southwest capes we could see 20 to 30 millimeters and that extends around to around that 200 kilometers inland as well uh, and we're even seeing potentially some isolated figures up around that 50 to 60 millimetres uh, around that uh, Mandra to Bunbury and uh, adjacent inland areas, Uh, but some model guidance only says 20 millimetres through there. So at this stage we still are a little bit variable in uh, how much rainfall may occur through that western uh, coastal areas Uh, but for the main western parts of the agricultural area uh, the model guidance is a bit more consistent where we could see 10 to 15, maybe up to 20 millimetres through that western part and if you're in the eastern part on Sunday in particular where probably only looking at around two to five millimeters Uh, but it's probably not until Monday morning where we see most of that rainfall moving into the eastern parts of the agricultural area and as that front moves through early Monday uh, into Monday afternoon, those showers and storms with those slightly heavier falls will extend eastwards. So during Monday, uh, midnight to midnight, we're looking at figures through most of the agricultural area of the South West Lane Division, around five to uh, 12 millimetres, so we will see some uh, good figures extend throughout most of those central parts uh and once again on that west coast we'll see slightly higher figures on the monday around 10 to 15 uh, maybe even up to 25 millimeters uh there's been a specific question about the south coast now unfortunately the guidance isn't painting as much um, rainfall around that south coast between Albany and Esperance. We're probably looking at uh, over the entire weekend, uh, figures up around 10 millimetres only whereas those inland parts of the Southwest Land Division we could see up to that 20 millimetres. So we're definitely not going to see as much rainfall along that south coast as we will see through other parts of the Southwest Land Division unfortunately. Uh, and by Tuesday that uh, tr- front moves uh, into South Australia and we're looking at just some residual showers along the west coast and south coast and very adjacent inland areas. Uh, So it's going to be a quite uh, wet four days for the southwest land division. Uh, And through other parts of the state, we are seeing just uh, sunny conditions through the northern parts and the southeastern parts. We may see some showers extend into the southeast Gascoyne on Sunday and Monday and into the southern goldfields on Sunday, on Monday as well as that front moves through. And the Euclid district might get some uh, showers on Monday as well. Um, but otherwise, it remains about uh, average for this time of year through the Kimberley and Pilbara. And warnings this
1: afternoon, Steph.
9: So we do just have our uh, coastal wind warning for the Lewin and Albany coastlines, and that's from around
1: the South West Capes around Teberma Bay. Great. Thank you for the wrap. Appreciate that, Steph. This is the Country Hour on ABCWA 20 to 1. Richard Hudson in the studio now to go through the rainfall figures. And, Richard, I'm a little bit paranoid about how I say knee. now. Maybe I'll just go with Albany. <laughs> yeah,
0: you could. <laughs> just to
1: really, you know... Great on more people. (laughs) So, can you say it for me? Because I'm paranoid. How do you say it?
0: No, no, I'll get it wrong.
1: Is there a rainfall? There's no rainfall figure for it. No.
0: Yeah, there is. Okay. (laughs) Well, I'll wait for it then. There's nothing at all in the northern and eastern forecast districts, though. Uh, But in the central west, the highest rainfall was Kalbarri with two. The reason I'm reading that out is someone rang me yesterday and said, "Do you realise how much even three mils means?" So, I've read out (laughs) something that means something to someone (laughs) in the. Southwest Acton Park 7, Busselton Shire 8, Cape Lewin 5, the same for Chapman Hill, Margaret River 9 to 11 mills at a few locations, Vast 9 and the same for Witchcliffe, Witchcliffe had 9, I think the guy at Witchcliffe actually takes a look at the official figures and then just roughly says his was the same (laughs) because he's near Margaret River. (laughs) Nothing over a mil for the rest of the state, but, yeah, in the southern coastal region, Elbow Knee did get 0.4 of a mil and Elbow Knee Airport had 0.2 of a mil. Kulin had nothing at all, so bring it on, Jargon. Write that email to our bosses.
1: Richard, thank you for that. Um, This is the Country Hour, still to come. Uh, 19 to 1 is the time. And before the news at 1 o'clock, a wrap of the wool market... Uh, Reminiscing about your first camp draft and also lamb bacon. Is there such a thing? You'll find out shortly here on the Country Hour. Is the hype around lithium real? For a while there, lithium was just, you know, all the rage. And then last year, lithium prices dropped and they haven't bounced back. But the head of a WA lithium mining company believes the lithium market will almost triple By 2025. Pilbara Minerals Ken Brinsden says everything is still looking good for the emerging EV or electric vehicle market.
12: The the market has to grow by about three to four times over approximately the next kind of five to seven years. And then when you start to stretch that out over 10 and 20 years, the market has to grow 10 times. You know, it's really. Really incredible leverage on lithium raw material demand as the adoption of evs increases and that 's why these recent announcements are are significant to, you know for western australia uh, as as to support for the european uh, ev industry big big subsidies being applied there to the tune of you know sort of twenty five to depending on the country sort of twenty five to forty percent of the cost of the vehicle is being supported by subsidies so For the average consumer who's looking to buy a new car, uh, an EV becomes a real option because it's suddenly become very, very cost effective. So that should translate to increasing demand in the coming quarters and years. In fact, based on that subsidy support, the expectation is that the European market will actually become the world's largest EV market this year, just overtaking China and then will outpace China for the next couple of years.
1: Pilbara Minerals Managing Director Ken Brinsden explaining why he has confidence that world lithium prices are about to rise. Lithium is required to make the batteries for those electric cars. So if that prediction is correct, Ken Bresden says WA will be well positioned as a global supplier. His company mines lithium at its Pilgangora mine, which is about 120 kilometres south of Port Hedland. But are you still sceptical? about the future of lithium. Well, the Critical Minerals Facilitation Office is the government's peak body that oversees the development of Australia's resources. Jessica Robinson heads the office and she says these sorts of predictions are not just being made by the heads of companies that stand to benefit if you buy lithium shares. She thinks the global adoption of the electric vehicle is real and that's good news for lithium miners.
13: I think all the indications to date are that we're in a fairly short term suppression of price, uh, and that's because the production ramped up quickly and there has been that slowdown in demand before COVID, but obviously uh, affected by COVID 19 economic outlook as well. So we're not expecting that to be a long term issue. In fact, in 2018, we saw a huge uptick in in production it's just the demand is now got to catch up uh, and then we're expecting potentially to, to be not enough supply to meet uh, expected demand for that electric vehicle production
10: yeah and that's what a lot of mining companies are saying so that's not just pumping up their own project you believe that to be the truth
13: absolutely so that's coming from data without as i said our trading partners so in particular the eu they have uh very uh, ambitious policies in place that will be looking to ban combustion vehicles or engines by 2040 so that you know that ultimately uh, needs to be replaced by a move to electric vehicles and then other renewable sources so uh, that's partially what's driving that and and it's the same with huge economies like India who are also seeking to to move into electric vehicles Big economies like that will ultimately drive the demand for our our resources.
10: Now, lithium hydroxide prices as well as spodumene have declined. When do you expect prices to turn for the better?
13: So we're expecting it to still flatten a little bit this year, uh, but starting to pick up next year. And then, um, as mentioned, really looking to see our uh, lithium concentrate exports more than double by 2024, Uh So in, in, as a build-up to that, uh, we're currently sitting in, in real-term figures of 0.6 million, uh, but that's expected to grow to
1: um, 3 billion in, in terms of that increase over that period. 14 to 1, Jessica Robinson, who's the Head of Critical Minerals Facilitation for the Department of Industry, Science, Resources and Energy. And if you'd like to read more on that story, you can find James Liveris's story on the ABC Rural website. Uh, There is a link on the ABC Rural Facebook page for you. Now, when you think of bacon... Now, I'm sure your mind probably goes to the traditional pork product that you cook with your eggs for breakfast. But would you give lamb bacon a try? Well, Northern Victorian farmer Tony Barton is not just trying it out. She says she has tapped into new export markets in the Middle East with this product. She spoke to Eden Henninen to explain
11: how it all started. I was looking at ways to add value to every animal that left this property. The one thing I was always left perplexed about was the lamb flap um, or the lamb belly, what can you do with it? And everyone was sort of saying making it into sausages, but it is a very fatty piece and I wasn't really satisfied with that. So, yeah, one day just uh, through family and friends, um, I just came up with this crazy idea of uh, lamb bacon. How would you describe the taste of lamb bacon compared to pork bacon? The best way to describe it is... Um, If you think of a lamb roast and the crunchy fat bits on the side of the, um, or the caramelised fat on the side of the roast, um, it has a similar component to that. You could almost say it's a bit, like, roast lamb it won a gold medal actually in the Australian Food Awards in 2019 and that was actually pitched up against in the pork bacon category so I ruffled a few feathers as you can imagine and I spent the whole day hiding in my cool room because I didn't know what I'd just started I guess it looks the same as pork bacon but a bit more red and you can see that it did crisp up quite a bit Yes, yeah, so if you have um, old-school cured bacon as well, it will go crispy um, each time. The other benefit of the lamb bacon is there's no rind. What what have some of the responses been like when you first tell people about this? Yes, yeah, so the first uh, two years of my lamb bacon journey was explaining to people that lamb... Uh, so bacon is not species-specific, so it can be made from other products, so other proteins, so turkey bacon, beef bacon, and now lamb bacon... They're quite perplexed by it, not understanding what it might taste like, but very keen to try it. It wasn't just consumers who uh, were confused by it. It was even our regulators and um, to the point where they decided that it was a prohibited product overnight and they contacted me and told me to shut the entire business down. The reason was that... Uh, bacon must be made from pork that was the reason from them and nowhere in our food standards guides does it say that bacon must be made from pork um so i went back to them with that uh with that evidence and so they lifted the ban within 12 hours not to mention the stress it put me under um and luckily i didn't have to go through with a complete product product recall why do you think this hasn't been done before Look, I really don't know. I think that, you know, predominantly small goods are made by Italians and Italians have always used pork. So when you think about innovation in small goods, it probably has gone into flavour profiles or different ways of curing, but always using the same protein. You've been selling it here and and locally at farmer's markets. Where did the idea come about to to start exporting? Mm -hmm. So at the end of 2017, only three months after I started or had the idea of making the product, um, I was participating in Rocket Cedar, which is a entrepreneurial accelerator program for agribusiness. And I was selected to go on that particular program. It was an intensive 14-week program. And, you know, a lot of the uh, questions you're asked around, you know, food innovation is, well, what's the problem that you're solving? And for me, I was solving the problem of uh, adding value to my entire lamb carcass what i didn't realize and i did in this program was that actually i was solving the problem of half of the world's consumers who don't eat pork uh who don't eat pork bacon and there's a lot of people who don't for religious health or ethical reasons the other thing that i was able to tap into was the victorian government um they have trade missions that go to different parts of the world where they take australian produce victorian producers and i was selected to go in 2018 2019 and 2020 so first reactions from buyers over there was uh, what you've already asked me why didn't anyone else already think of this and I don't know the answer to that question I was just I'm just lucky enough that I was the first
1: is it really going to take off do you think lamb bacon northern victorian farmer tony barton certainly thinks it has she's had some good signs by the sounds of it too this is the country hour nine to one As the coronavirus restrictions ease across the country, well, also in the Northern Territory, a number of iconic bush events are starting to make a comeback. The small town of Adelaide River is today hosting the Territory's first camp draft of the year, which is sure to attract plenty of people from nearby cattle stations who are eager just to do, well, some riding, but also just catch up with everyone. Uh, The gossip and a few drinks, perhaps. Events such as camp drafts are a really great chance for people who work on stations to you know get together. And as Matt Brand found out, it seems everyone remembers their first draft.
14: Uh, my name's Alec Rainey. I'm uh, work at Turkey Rural McPherson in Alice Springs and I remember my first camp draft was the Elvatoff camp draft just over the border in Queensland and I went in there and had absolutely no clue what the rules were nothing and i've gone into the the um gone in the cutting ring and just i I don't know really what happened but i just took off out the gate and everyone just just looked at me like you ran an absolute route what are you doing a couple of old fellas came up to me and said what why are you here like do you know what the rules are blah blah and i just sort of i just sort of went back to the camp and just sat there and was like right okay what what is camp drafting what (laughs) what what, what do i
10: do have Um, you since gone on to become a champion no
14: (laughs) is that where this story's going no no it's far from it (laughs) went the complete opposite i don't think i had the courage of even getting back on the horse for the rest of the draft and then the next few drafts i remember i'd I'd go in there and people just look at me like this guy again (laughs) 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 but no it ended ended up being pretty pretty fun
5: hello i'm casey ellis uh working for NTCA, based in katherine Um, I remember my first camp draft. I think it was either 13 or 14 at Nixon's Crossing. And, um, yeah, I was just the little Victorian coming up here, got given the old gelding to blind, I think he was blind in one eye, (laughs) um, to ride at at her first draft um, and end up scoring like an 82, my first ever camp draft. So, yeah, my head got pretty big after that. Wow. There, yeah, there you
10: go. Did that put you on the podium in 82?
5: Uh, no, not quite, not but quite. that was good enough for me. <laughs> First with one. The
10: half-blind horse.
14: Yeah,
5: exactly.
10: <laughs>
0: wow. He's going can draft and that he's ready to roll. Uh, horse sweat and leather etched in his soul. He rolls back, checks back, gates one again. He's riding for I'm Chloe Grant,
9: I'm with Frontier. Uh next export mob based in Darwin. Uh, I think the best thing about the drafting is the sheer size and effort people go to to catch up. You know, the, the kilometres that are driven and the effort that's put in just to sit around a bar and drink, really, <laughs> at the
14: end of the And day. sometimes
11: compete. Ah,
9: yeah. Uh, yeah, sometimes compete. Most of the time. But no, it's, yeah, the, the effort that people put in, you know, yeah, the thousands of Ks that people do a year just to have a good time.
14: G'day, my name's Mark Hogan. I live in Darwin. Um, My first camp draft was at Kununurra in East Kimberleys. As a first year Jackaroo, just went in all the events I could, even the bareback draft and being a not very confident rider, got out in the camp and the horse just decided to stop, but I kept going over the years of the horse, um, which was a bit of amusement for everyone around. So no, but it was good, good fun and get up and have a laugh and haven't, haven't camped out since. Oh. <laughs> As it you? after falling off, you've just called it quits on that? Just not participating good. Uh, just spectating now. Spectator <laughs> sport.
0: Every good sport needs a crowd, yeah? That's right. That's right.
1: Some of the young guns of the Northern Territory cattle industry sharing some memories of their first camp draft with Matt Bran. This is the Country Hour. Four minutes to one to the Wool Market... And you heard a little bit about the wool market earlier in the hour, but now just basically a wrap. And uh, there's not really any good news in this week's wool market, to be honest. All three selling centres at Fremantle, Sydney and Melbourne lost more ground this week. Nationally, there were 28,029 bales on offer with an 11.5% passed in rate. With a closer look at the sales and prices,
15: here's Alice Wilsden. It was a two day sale with Fremantle, Sydney, and Melbourne all offering over both days. Tuesday saw losses over all microns in Sydney and Melbourne, finishing the day back 3 to 38 cents. The downward trend was able to see some support come Wednesday, and the eastern centres had limited movement with even some slight gains over the finer end. The eastern market indicator finished at 1110 cents, which was back 29 cents, and the western market indicator finished at 1176 cents, which is back 71 cents. Mantle suffered the greatest losses this week due to having missed the sale last week. With the losses felt over east, um, we had to adjust back to our levels, and on the back of another weaker market, the adjustments were severe. Tuesday saw 3,415 bows on offer, with 6% withdrawn and 14% passed in. It was a struggle to survive the day, and the microns fell back dramatically. 75 to 100% losses were felt over the microns. Wednesday saw 2,820 bowels on offer, and 11% was withdrawn and 14% was passed in. The dramatic fall from Tuesday saw Wednesday microns hold up. Mid to broad microns remained unchanged with a finer end back another 5 to 10 cents. Major buyers on Tuesday were Tech Wool, PJ Morris and West Coast Walls. Wednesday major buyers were West Coast Walls, PJ Morris and Endeavour Wool exports. So the finishing quotes free mantle. 18 micron finished at 1,408 cents, which was back 86 cents. 19 micron finished at 1,261 cents, which was back 105 cents. Twenty micron finished at twelve hundred and eleven cents, which was back eighty-two cents. Twenty-one micron finished at eleven hundred and ninety-six cents, and that was back eighty-five cents. The pieces on the Tuesday fell back 45 to 75 cents. Lambs lost 40 cents, locks were up 50 cents, and the crotchens fell back 15 cents. Wednesday saw pieces lose another fifteen to twenty five cents on the finer end and another forty five to fifty cents on the broader end. Lambs came back another for twenty cents, locks were back thirty five cents, and Crutchins were back forty cents. Cardin's only lost 19 cents for the week, finishing at 891 cents. We start the new financial year next week and it will be a Wednesday-Thursday sale. All senders will be offering over both days with nationally 31,072 bales on offer and 7,104 bales are offered here in Fremantle.
1: Thank you for the wrap, Alice. And just before the news at one, after months of uncertainty, the NAFI, fire tracking website has received much needed federal funding allowing the service to continue operating for another year. Now NAFI stands for the North Australia and Rangelands Fire Information and it provides information on fuel loads, hotspots and fire scar histories just to help people on the land prepare for and manage fires. Funding was due to expire next week, but today the federal government announced funding has been extended for the service. So that is good news if you're in the north of the state. In News Just In, Tasmania plans to open its borders to visitors in four weeks. You'll hear more about that in the news. And just on how you say... Albany or Elbony, Peter in Albany, says, Try to say it wrong. It triggers the old locals and amuses the new locals. One o'clock.
0: You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.